Hello everyone. In this episode, I am going to be reading What Katie Did Next, Chapter 11. Next. Chapter 11 Lieutenant Wevington's leave had nearly expired. He must rejoin his ship. But he waited till the last possible moment in order to help his sister through the move to Albano, where it had been decided that Amy should go for a few days of hill air before undertaking the longer journey to Florence. It was a perfect morning in late March when the pale little invalid was carried in her uncle's strong arms and placed in the carriage which was to take them to an old town on the mountain slopes which they had seen shining from far away for so many weeks past. Spring had come in her fairest shape to Italy, when once the campaign with its long line of aqueducts, arches and hoary tums was left behind and the carriage slowly began to mount the gradual rises of the hill. Amy revived. With every breath of the fresher air, her eyes seemed to brighten and her voice to grow stronger. She held Mabel up to look at the view and the sound of her laugh, faint and feeble as it was, was like music to her mother's ears. Amy wore a droll little silk-lined cap on her head, under which a downy growth of pale brown furs was gradually thickening. Already, it showed a tendency to form into tiny rings, which, to Amy, who had always hankered for curls, was an extreme satisfaction. Strange to say, the same thing exactly had happened to Mabel. Her hair had grown out into soft little round curls also. Uncle Ned and Katie had ransacked Rome for this baby wig, which filled and realised all Amy's hopes for her child. On the same excursion, they had bought the materials for the pretty spring suit which Mabel wore, for it had been deemed necessary to sacrifice most of her wardrobe as a concession to possible fever germs. Amy admired the pearl-coloured dress and hat the fringed jacket and little lace-trimmed parasol so much that she was quite consoled 
for the loss of the blue velvet costume and ermine muff, which had been the pride of her heart ever since they left Paris, and whose destruction they had scarcely dared to confess to her. So up, 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 they climbed till the gateway of the old town was passed, and the carriage stopped before a quaint building, once the residence of the Bishop of Albano, but now known as the Hotel de la Poste. Here they alighted and were shown up a wide and lofty staircase to their rooms. Such enormous rooms as they were, it was quite a journey to go from one side of them to the other. The floors were of stone, with squares of carpet laid down over them, which looked absurdly small for the great spaces they were supposed to cover. The beds and tables were of the usual size, but they seemed almost dull furniture because the chambers were so big. A quaint old paper with an enormous pattern of banyan trees and pagodas covered the walls. And every now and then, betrayed by an oblong of regular cracks, the existence of a hidden door papered to look exactly like the rest of the wall. These mysterious doors made Katie nervous, and she never rested till she had opened every one of them and explored the places they led to. One gave access to a queer little bathroom. Another led through a narrow, dark passage to a sort of balcony or loggia overhanging the garden. A third ended in a dusty closet with an artful chink in it from which you could peep into what had been the bishop's drawing room, but which was now turned into the dining room of the hotel. It seemed made for the purpose of espial. And Katie had visions of a long line of reverend prelates with their ears glued to the chink overhearing what was being said about them in the apartment beyond. Before he left them, Lieutenant Wavington had a talk with his sister in the garden. She rather forced this talk upon him, for various things were lying at her heart, about which she longed for explanation. But he yielded so easily to her wiles that it was evident he was not averse to the idea. Come, Polly, 
Don't beat about the bush any longer, he said at last, amused and a little irritated at her half hints and little feminine finesses. I know what you want to ask, and as there's no use making a secret of it, I will take my turn in asking. Have I any chance, do you think? Any chance? About Katie, do you mean? Oh, Ned, you make me so happy. Yes, about her, of course. I don't see why you should say, of course, remarked his sister with the perversity of her sex. When it's only five or six weeks ago that I was lying awake at night for fear you were being gobbled up by that lily page. There was little risk of it, replied her brother seriously. She's awfully pretty and she dances beautifully and the other fellows were all wild about her and, well, you know yourself how such things go. I can't see now what it was that I fancied so much about her. I don't suppose I could have told exactly at the time, but I can tell without the smallest trouble what it is in the other. In Katie? I should think so, cried Mrs. Ash apathetically. The two are no more to be compared than, than, well, bread and salabob. You can live on one, and you can't live on the other. Come now, Miss Page, isn't so bad at that. She is a nice girl enough, and pretty. Prettier than Katie. I'm not so far gone that I can't see that, but we won't talk about her. She's not in the present question at all. Very likely, she'd had had nothing to say to me in any case. I was only one out of a dozen, and she never gave me reason to suppose that she cared more for me than the rest. Let us talk about this friend of yours. Have I any chance at all, do you think, Polly? Ned, you are the Dearest boy, I would rather have Katie for a sister than anyone else I know. She's so nice all through, so true and sweet and satisfactory. She's all that and more. She's a woman to tie to for life, to be perfectly sure of always. She would make a splendid wife for any man. I'm not half good enough for her, but the question is, and you haven't answered it yet, Polly, what's my chance? I don't know, said his sister slowly. Then I must ask her, and I shall do so today.
I don't know, repeated Mrs. Ash. She is a woman, therefore to be one, and I don't think there's anyone ahead of you. That is the best hope I have to offer, Ned. Katie never talks to such things, and though she's so frank, I can't guess whether or not she ever thinks about them. She likes you, however, I'm sure of that. But Ned, it will not be wise to say anything to her yet. Not say anything? Why not? No, recollect that it is only a little while since she looked upon you as the admirer of another girl, and a girl she doesn't like very much, though they are cousins. You must give her time to get over that impression. Wait a while, that's my advice, Ned. I'll wait any time, if only she will say yes in the end. But it's hard to go away without a word of hope, and it's more like a man to speak out, it seems to me. It's too soon, persisted his sister. You don't want her to think you a fickle fellow falling in love with a fresh girl every time. You go into port and falling out again when the ship sails. Sailors have a bad reputation for that sort of thing. No woman cares to win a man like that. Great Scott, I should think not. Do you mean to say that is the way my conduct appears to her, Polly? No, I don't mean just that, but wait, dear Ned, I'm sure it is better. Fortified by this sage counsel, Lieutenant Worthington went away the next morning without saying anything to Katie in words, though perhaps eyes and tones may have been less discreet. He made them promise that someone should send a letter every day about Amy, and as Mrs. Ash frequently devolved the writing of these bulletins upon Katie, and the replies came in the shape of long letters, she found herself conducting a pretty regular correspondence without quite intending it. Ned Worthington wrote particularly nice letters. He had the knack, for often found in women than men, of giving a picture with a graphic touch and indicating what was droll or what was characteristic with a single happy phrase. His letters grew to be one of Katie's pleasures, and sometimes, as Mrs. Ash watched the colour deepen in her cheeks, while she read, her heart would bound hopefully within her. But she was a wise woman in her way, and she wanted Katie for a sister very much, so she never said a word or looked startled 
or surprise for her, but left the thing to work itself out, which was best in the course of love affairs. Little Amy's improvement at Albondo was something remarkable. Mrs. Swift watched over her like a lynx. Her vigilance never relaxed. Amy was made to eat and sleep and walk and rest with the regularity of a machine and this exact system combined with the good air worked like a charm. The little one gained hour by hour. They could absolutely see her growing fat, her mother declared. She had gained so much before the time came to start for Florence that they scarcely dreaded the journey. But it provided worse than their expectations. They had not been able to secure a carriage to themselves and were obliged to share their compartment with two English ladies and three Roman Catholic priests one old, the other is young. The older priest seemed to be a person of some consequence, for quite a number of people came to see him off and knelt for his blessing devoutly as the train moved away. The younger ones, Katie guessed, to be seminary students under his charge. At last, the train steamed down the valley of the Arno, revealed fair Florence sitting among olive-clad hills, with Giotti's beautiful bell tower and the great many-coloured soft-hued cathedral, and the square tower, the old palace, and the quaint bridges over the river looking exactly as they do in the photographs. And Katie would have felt delighted in spite of dust and fatigue had not Amy looked so worn out and exhausted. They were seriously troubled about her and for the moment could think of nothing else. Happily, the fatigue did no permanent harm, and a day or two of rest made her all right again. By good fortune, a nice little apartment in the modern quarter of the city had been vacated by its winter occupants. The very day of their arrival, Aunt Mrs. Ashes secured it for a month with all its conveniences and advantages, including a maid named Maria, who had been servant to the just-departed tenants. Maria was a very tall woman, at least six feet two, and had a splendid contralto voice, which she occasionally exercised while busy over her pots and pats. 
It was so remarkable to hear these grand arias and recitatives proceeding from a kitchen some eight feet square that Katie was at great pains to satisfy her curiosity about it. By aid of the dictionary and much persistent questioning, she made out that Maria, in her youth, had received a partial training for the opera. But in the end, it was decided that she was too big and heavy for the stage, and the poor giantess, as Amy named her, had been forced to abandon her career and gradually had sunk to the position of maid of all work. Katie stood in her way. For Maria, though a good-natured giantess, was by no means quick of intelligence. I do think that the manner in which people over here can make homes for themselves at five minutes notice is perfectly delightful, cried Katie at the end of their first day's housekeeping. I wish we could do the same in America. How cosy it looks here already. It was indeed cosy. Their new domain consisted of a parlour in a corner furnished in bright yellow brocade with windows to south and west, a nice little dining room, three bedrooms with dimity curtained beds, a square entrance hall lighted at night by a tall slender brass lamp whose double wicks were fed with olive oil and the aforesaid tiny kitchen, behind which was a sleeping cubby, quite too small to be good fit for the giantess. The rooms were full of conveniences, easy chairs, sofas, plenty of bureaus and dressing tables, and corner fireplaces like Franklin's stoves in which odd little fires burned on cool days. Made of pine cones, cakes of pressed sawdust, exactly like Boston brown bread, cut into slices, and a few sticks of wood thriftily adjusted for fuel is worth its weight in gold in Florence. Katie's was the smallest of the bedrooms, but she liked it best of all for the reason that its one big window opened with a stem as thick as her wrist. It was covered just now with masses of tiny white blossoms whose fragrance was inexpressible, delicious, and made every breath drawn in their neighbourhood a delight. The sun streamed in on all sides of the little apartment, which filled a narrowing angle at the union 
of three streets. And from one window and another, glimpses could be caught of the distant heights about the city. San Miniato in one direction and Bella Squardo in another. And for the third, the long olive hung ascent of Fiesole, crowned by its grey cathedral towers. It was astonishing how easily everything fell into train about this little establishment. Every morning at six, the English baker left two small sweet brown loaves and a dozen rolls at the door. They followed the dairy man with a supply of tiny leaf-shaped pats of freshly churned butter, a big flask of milk and two small bottles of thick cream with a twist of vine leaf in each by way of a cork. Next came a contadino with a flask of red Chiatini wine, a film of oil floating on top to keep it sweet. People in Florence must drink wine whether they like it or not, because the lime impregnated water is unsafe for use without some admixture. Dinner came from a trattoria in a tin box with a pan of coals inside to keep it warm, which box was carried on a man's head. It was furnished at a fixed price per day. A soup, two dishes of meat, two vegetables and a sweet dish. The supply was so generous as always, to leave something toward next day's luncheon. Salad, fruit, fresh eggs, Maria bought for them in the old market. From the confectioners came loaves of pain suntal, a sort of light cake made with arrowroot instead of flour, and sometimes, by way of a treat, a square of pan forte da siena compounded of honey, almonds and chocolate, a mixture as pernicious as it is delicious, and which might take a medal anywhere for the sure production of nightmares. Amy soon learned to know the shops from which these del delicacies came. She had her favourites too, among the strolling merchants who sold oranges and those little sweet native figs dried in the sun without sugar, which are among the specialities of Florence. They, in their turn, learned to know her and to watch for the appearance of her little capped head and Mabel's blonde wig at the window, lingering about till she came, and advertising their wares with musical modulations, so appealing 
that Amy was always running to Katie, who acted as housekeeper to beg her to please buy this or that. Because it is my old man and he wants me so much. But chicken, we've plenty of figs for today. No matter, get some more, please do. I'll eat them all. Really, I will. And Amy was as good as her word. Her convalescent appetite was something prodigious. There was another branch of shopping in which they all took equal delight. The beauty and the cheapness of Florence flowers are a continual surprise to a stranger. Every morning after breakfast, an old man came creaking up the two long flights of stairs which led to Mrs. Ash's department, tapped at the door and, as soon as it opened, inserted a shabby elbow and a large flat basket full of flowers. Such flowers, great masses of scarlet and cream-coloured tulips and white and gold narcissus, knots of roses of all shades, carnations, heavy-headed trails of wisteria, wild hyacinths, violets, deep crimson and orange, ranunculus, giglios, or wild irises, the Florence emblem, so deeply purple as to be almost black, anemones, spring beauties, faintly tinted wood blossoms, tied in large loose nosegays, ivy, fruit blossoms, everything that can be thought of that is fair and sweet. These enticing wares, the old man would tip out on the table. Mrs. Ash and Katie would select what they wanted and then the process of bargaining would begin, without which no sale is completed in Italy. The old man would name an enormous price, five times as much as he hoped to get, expected to give. Katie would offer a very small one, considerably less than she expected. The old man would dance with dismay, wring his hands, assure them that he should die of hunger and all his family with him if he took less than the price named. He would then come down half a franc in his demand. So it would go on for five minutes, ten sometimes for a quarter of an hour, slowly going up a cent or two at a time. Next, the giantess would mingle with the fray. She would bounce out of the kitchen, berate the flower vendor, snatch up his flowers, declare that they smelt badly, fling them down again, 
pouring out all the while a voluble tirade of reproaches and revilings, and looking so enormous in her excitement that Katie wondered that the old man dared to answer her at all. Finally, there would be a sudden lull. The old man would shrug his shoulders and, remarking that he and his wife and his aged grandmother must go without bread that day since it was the Signora's will, take the money offered and depart, leaving such a mass of flowers behind him that Katie would begin to think that they had paid an unfair price for them and to feel a little rueful till she observed that the old man was absolutely dancing downstairs with rapture over the good bargain he had made and that Maria was black with indignation over the extravagance of her ladies. The Americani are a nation of spendthrifts, she would mutter to herself as she quickened the charcoal in her drawer, little range by fanning it with palm leaf fans. They squander money like water. Well, all the better for us Italians, with a shrug of her shoulders. But, Maria, it was only 16 cents that we paid, and look at those flowers. They are at least half a bushel of them. 16 cents for garbage like that? The signorina would better let me make her bargains for her. Gia, gia. No Italian lady would have paid more than 11 sous for such useful robber. It is evident that the Signorina's countrymen eat gold when at home. They think so little of casting it away. Altogether, what with the comfort and quiet of this little home, and via sinks, great library from which they could draw books at will to make the doing and seeing more intellectual. The month at Florence passed only too quickly and was one of the times to which they afterwards looked back with most pleasure. Amy grew steadily stronger and the freedom from anxiety about her after their long strain of apprehension was restful and healing beyond expression to both mind and body. The very last excursion of all and one of the pleasantest was to the old Empire Theatre at Fiesel and it was there while they sat in the soft glow of the late afternoon tying into bunches the violets which had gathered from under walls whose foundations antedate Rome itself that a cheery call sounded from above and 
an unexpected surprise descended on them in the shape of Lieutenant Worthington, who, having secured another fifteen days for a loan, had come to take his sister on to Venice. I didn't write you that I had applied for leave, he explained, because there seemed so little chance of me getting off again so soon. But, as luck had it, Carruthers, whose turn it was, sprained his ankle and was laid up, and the commandor let us exchange. I made all the capital I could out of Amy's fever, but upon my word, I felt like a humbug when I came upon her and Mrs. Swift in the casino just now, as I was hunting for you. How she had picked up! I should never have known her for the same child. Yes, she seems perfectly well again, and as strong as before. She would not let us bring her here this afternoon, for fear we should stay out told the dew fell. Ned, it is perfectly delightful that you were able to come. It makes going to Venice seem quite a different thing, doesn't it, Katie? I don't want it to seem quite different, because going to Venice was always one of my dreams, replied Katie with a little laugh. I hope at least it doesn't make it seem less pleasant. No, indeed, I am glad, said Katie. We shall all be seeing it for the first time too, shall we not? I think you said you had never been there. She spoke simply and frankly, but she was conscious of an odd shyness. I simply couldn't stand it any longer, Ned Worthington confided to his sister when they were alone. My head is so full of her that I can't attend to my work, and it came to me all of a sudden that this might be my last chance. You'll be going north before long, you know, to Switzerland, and so on, where I cannot follow you. So, I made a clean breast of it to the door, and the good fellow, who had a soft spot in his heart for a love story, behaved like a brick and made it all straight for me to come away. Mrs. Ash did not join in these commendation of the door. Her attention was fixed on another part of her brother's discourse. Then you won't be able to come to me again. I shan't see you again after this, she exclaimed. Dear me, I never realized that before. What shall I do without you? You will have Miss Carr. She is a host in herself suggested Ned Worthington. His sister nodded. Katie 
is a jewel, she remarked presently, but somehow one wants a man to call upon. I shall feel lost without you now. The month's housekeeping wound up that night with a thick tea in honour of Lieutenant Worthington's arrival, which taxed all the resources of the little establishment. Maria was sent out hastily to buy pan forte da Siena and vino de Asti, the fresh eggs for an omelette and chicken's breasts smothered in cream from the restaurant and artichokes for a salad and flowers to garnish all and the guest ate and praised and admired and Amy and Mabel sat on his knee and explained they were all very happy together their merriment was so infectious that it extended to the poor giantess who had been very pensive all day at the prospect of losing her good place and who was now raising her voice in the grand aria from Orfeo and made the kitchen ring with the passionate demand Shifara Sinza Eurydice the splendid notes full of fire and lamentation rang out across the saucepans as effectively as if they had been footlights and Katie rising softly opened the kitchen door a little way that they might not lose a sound the next day brought them to Venice it was a moment indeed as Katie seated herself for the first time in a gondola and looked from beneath its black hood at the palace walls on the grand canal past which they were gliding some were creamy white and black some orange tawny others of a dull delicious ruddy color half pink half red but all in build and ornament were unlike palaces elsewhere high on the prow before her stood the gondolier his form defined in dark outline against the sky as he swayed and bent to his long oar rising his head now and again to give a wild musical cry as warning to other approaching gondolas it was all like a dream ned worthington sat beside her looking more at the changes in her expressive face than at the palaces venice was a new thing to him as to katie but she was a new feature in his life also and even more interesting than venice they seemed to float on pleasures for the next 10 days their arrival had been happily timed to coincide with a great popular festival 
which for nearly a week kept Venice in a state of continual brilliant gala. All the days were spent on the water, only landing now and then to look at some famous buildings or pictures, or to eat ices in the piazza with the lovely facade of S.T. Marks before them. Dining or sleeping seemed a sheer waste of time. The evenings were spent on the water too, for every night, immediately after sunset, a beautiful drifting pageant started from the front of the Doge's palace to make the tour of the Grand Canal, and our friends always took part in it. In its centre went a barge hung with embroideries and filled with orange trees and musicians. This was surrounded by a great convoy of skiffs and gondolas bearing coloured lanterns and pennants and gay awnings and managed by gondoliers in picturesque uniforms. All these floated and shifted and swept on together with a sort of rhythmic undulations as if keeping time to the music while across their path dazzling showers and arches of coloured fire poured from the palace fronts and the hotels. Every movement of the fairy flotilla was repeated in the illuminated water. Every torch tip and scarlet lantern and flake of green or rosy fire above all the bright full moon looked down as if surprised. It was magically beautiful in effect. Katie felt as if her previous sober ideas about life and things had melted away. For the moment, the world was turned topsy-turvy. There was nothing hard or real or sordid left in it. It was just a fairy tale, and she was in the middle of it, as she had longed to be in her childhood. She was the princess, encircled by delights, and when she and Clover and Elsie played in paradise, only this was better. And dear me, who was this prince who seemed to belong to the story and to grow more important every day? Katie's fairy tales must come to an end. Katie's last chapter closed with a sudden turnover of the leaf when, toward the end of this happy fortnight, Mrs. Ash came into her room with the face of one was unpleasant news to communicate. Katie, she began, should you be awfully disappointed? Should you consider me a perfect wretch if I went home now instead of in the autumn? Katie was too much astonished to reply. 
I'm grown such a coward. I'm so knocked up and weakened by what I suffered in Rome that I find I cannot face the idea of going on to Germany and Switzerland alone without the idea Ned to take care of me. You are a perfect angel, dear, and I know that you would do all you could to make it easy for me, but I'm such a fool that I do not dare. I think my nerves must have given way, she continued half tearfully, but the very idea of shifting for myself for five months longer makes me so miserably homesick that I cannot endure it. I dare say I shall repent afterwards, and I tell myself now how silly it is, but it's no use. I shall never know another easy moment till I have Amy safe again in America and under your father's care. I find, she continued, after another little pause, that we can go down with Ned to Genoa and take a steamer there. I hate to disappoint you dreadfully, Katie, but I have almost decided to do it. Shall you mind very much? Can you ever forgive me? She was fairly crying now. Katie had swallowed hard before she could answer. The sense of disappointment was so sharp, and with all her efforts, there was almost a sob in her voice as she said, Why, yes, indeed, dear Polly, there is nothing to forgive. You are perfectly right to go home, if you feel so. Then, with another swallow, she added, you have given me the loveliest six months treat that ever was and i should be a greedy girl indeed if i found fault because it is cut off a little sooner than we expected you are so dear and good not to be vexed said her friend embracing her it makes me feel doubly sorry about disappointing you. Indeed, I wouldn't if I could help it. But I simply can't. I must go home. Perhaps we'll come back someday when Amy is grown up or safely married to somebody who will take care of her. This distant prospect was but a poor consolation for the immediate disappointment. The more Katie thought about it, the sorrier she did feel. It was not only losing the chance, very likely, the only one she would ever have of seeing Switzerland and Germany. It was all sorts of other little things besides. They must go home in a strange ship with a captain they did not know instead of the Spartacus, as they had planned. And they should land in New York, where no one would be waiting for them, 
and not having the fun of sailing into Boston Bay and seeing Rose on the wharf where she had promised to be. Furthermore, they must pass the hot summer in Burnett instead of the cool Alpine valleys. And Polly's house was let till October. She and Amy would have to shift for themselves elsewhere. Perhaps they would not be in Burnett at all. Oh dear, what a pity it was. What a dreadful pity. Then, the first shock of surprise and discomfiture over. Other ideas asserted themselves, and as she realised that in three weeks more, or four at the longest, she was to see Papa and Clover and all her dear people at home, she began to feel so very glad that she could hardly wait for the time to come. After all, there was nothing in Europe quite so good as that. No, I'm not sorry, she told herself. I'm glad. Poor Polly. It's no wonder she feels nervous after all she's gone through. I hope I wasn't cross to her. And it will be very nice to have Lieutenant to Wevington to take care of us as far as Genoa. The next three days were full of work. There was no more floating in gondolas except in the way of the business. All the shopping which they had put off must be done and the trunks packed for the voyage. Everyone recollected last errands and commissions. There was continual coming and going and confusion. And Amy, wild with excitement, popping up every other moment in the midst of it all, to demand of everybody if they were not glad that they were going back to America. Katie had never yet bought her gift for old Mrs. Redding. She had waited, thinking continually that she should see something more tempting still in the next place they went to. But now, with the sense that there were to be no more next places, she resolved to wait no longer and with a hundred francs in her pocket, set forth to choose something from among the many tempting things for sale in Piazza. A bracelet of old Roman coins had caught her fancy one day in a brick-a-brack shop, and she walked straight toward it, only pausing by the way to buy a pale blue iridescent pitcher at Salviat's for Cessie Slack and see it carefully rolled in seaweed and soft paper. The price of the bracelet was a little more than she expected and quite a long process of bargaining was necessary 
to reduce it to the sum she had spent. She had just succeeded and was counting on the money when Mrs. Ash and her brother appeared, having spied her from the opposite side of the piazza, where they were choosing last photographs at Nagas. Katie showed her purchase and explained that it was a present, for of course I should never walk out in cold blood and buy a bracelet for myself, she said with a laugh. This is a fascinating little shop, said Mrs. Ash. I wonder what is the price of that queer old chatelaine with the bottles hanging from it. The price was high, but Mrs. Ash was now tolerably conservant with shopping Italian, which consisted chiefly of a few words repeated many times over, and it lowered rapidly under the influence of her tropos and imolto caros, accompanied with telling little shrugs and looks of surprise. In the end, she bought it for less than two-thirds of what had been originally asked for. As she put the parcel in her pocket, her brother said, If you have done your shopping now, Polly, can't you come out for a last row? Katie may, but I can't, replied Mrs. Ash. The man promised to buy my gloves at six o'clock. He is to bring it, and I must be there to pay. Take her down to the Lido, Ned. It's an exquisite evening for the water, and the sunset promises to be delicious. You can take the time, can't you, Katie? Katie could. Mrs. Ash turned to leave them, but suddenly stopped short. Katie, look! Isn't that a picture? The picture was Amy, who had come to the piazza with Mrs. Swift to feed the doves of S.T. Marks, which was one of her favourite amusements. These pretty birds are the pets of all Venice, and so accustomed to being fondled and made much off by strangers that they are perfectly tame. Amy, when her mother caught sight of her, was sitting on the marble pavement with one on her shoulder, two perched on the edge of her lap, which was full of crumbs, and a flight of others circling round her head. She was looking up and calling them in soft tones. The sunlight caught the little downy curls on her head and made them glitter. The flying doves lit on the pavement and crowded round her. Their pearl and grey rose-tinted white feathers, scarlet feet, gold-ringed eyes, making a shifting confusion of colours as they hoped and fluttered and cooed about the little maid 
and startled even by her clear laughter. Close by stood Nurse Swift, observant and grimly pleased. The mother looked on with happy tears. Oh, Katie, think what she was a few weeks ago. And look at her now. Can I ever be thankful enough? She squeezed Katie's hand convulsively and walked away, turning her head now and then for another glance at Amy and the doves. While Ned and Katie silently crossed to the landing and got into a gondola. It was the perfection of a Venice evening, with silver waves lapsing and lulling under a rose and opal sky, and the sense that it was their last row on those enchanted waters made every moment seem doubly precious. I cannot tell you exactly what it was that Ned Worthington said to Katie during that row, or why it took so long to say it that they did not get in till after the sun was set and the stars had come out to peep at their bright glinting faces reflected in the Grand Canal. In fact, no one can tell for no one overheard, except Giacomo, the brown-yellow-jacketed gondolier, and as he did not understand a word of English, he could not repeat the conversation. Venetian boatmen, however, know pretty well what it means when a gentleman and lady, both young, find so much to say in low tones to each other under the gondola hood and are so long about giving the order to return. And Giacomo, deeply sympathetic, rode as softly and made himself as imperceptible as he could. A display of tact which merited the big silver piece with which Lieutenant Wevington crossed his palm on the landing. Mrs. Ash had begun to look for them long before they appeared, but I think she was neither surprised nor sorry that they were so late. Katie kissed her hastily and went away at once to pack, she said, and Ned was equally undemonstrative, but they looked so happy both of them, that Polly dear was quite satisfied and asked no questions. Five days later, the parting came, when the Florio steamer put into the port of Genoa for passengers. It was not an easy goodbye to say. Mrs. Ash and Amy both cried, and Mabel said to be in deep affliction also. But there were alleviations. The squadron was coming home in the autumn and the officers would have to leave to see their friends 
and of course Lieutenant Wavington must come to Burnett to visit his sister. Five months would soon go, he declared, but for all the cheerful assurances, his face was rueful enough as he held Katie's hand in a long tight clasp while the little boat waited to take him ashore. After that, it was just waiting to be got through with till they sighted Sandy Hook and the Never Sinks, a waiting varied with peeps at Marseilles and Gibraltar and the sight of a whale or two and one distant iceberg. The weather was fair all the way and the ocean smooth. Amy was never wary of lamenting her own stupidity in not having taken Marie and Matilda out of the confinement before they left Venice. That child has hardly been out of the trunk since we started, she said. She hasn't seen anything except a little bit of niece. I shall really be ashamed when the other children ask her about it. I think I shall play that she was left at boarding school and didn't come to Europe at all. Don't you think that would be the best way, Mama? You might play that. She was left in the state prison for having done something naughty, suggested Katie. But Amy scouted this idea. She never does naughty things, she said, because she never does anything at all. She's just stupid. Poor child. It's not her fault. The 36 hours between New York and Burnett seemed longer than all the rest of the journey put together, Katie thought, but they ended at last as the Lake Queen swung to her moorings at the familiar wharf where Dr. Carr stood surrounded with all his boys and girls just as they had stood the previous October, only that now there were no clouds on anyone's faces and Johnny was skipping up and down for joy instead of grief. It was a long moment while the plank was being lowered from the gangway, but the moment it was in place, Katie darted across, first ashore of all the passengers, and was in her father's arms. Mrs. Ash and Amy spent two or three days with them, while looking up temporary quarters elsewhere. And so long as they stayed, all seemed a happy confusion of talking and embracing, and exclaiming and distribution of gifts. After they went away, things fell into their customary train, and a certain flatness became apparent. Everything had happened that could happen. The long-talked-of European journey was over. Here was Katie, 
at home again months sooner than they expected yet she looked remarkably cheerful and content clover could not understand it she was likewise puzzled to account for one or two private conversations between katie and papa in which she had not been invited to take part and the occasional arrival of a letter from foreign parts about whose contents nothing was said. It seems a dreadful pity that you had to come so soon, she said one day when they were alone in her bedroom. It's delightful to have you, of course, but we had braced ourselves to do without you till October and there are such lots of delightful things that you could have been doing and seeing at this moment. Oh yes, indeed, replied Katie, but not at all, as if she were particularly disappointed. Katie Carr, I don't understand you, persisted Clover. Why didn't you feel worse about it? Here, you have lost five months of the most splendid time you ever had and you don't seem to mind it a bit why if i were in your place my heart would be perfectly broken and you needn't have come either that's the worst of it it was just a whim of polly's papa says amy might have stayed as well as not why aren't you sorrier katie I don't know, perhaps because I had so much as it was, enough to last all my life, I think, though. I should like to go again. You can't imagine what beautiful pictures are put away in my memory. I don't see that you had so awfully much, said the aggravated Clover. You were there only a little more than six months, for I don't count the sea, and ever so much of that time was taken up with nursing Amy. You can't have any pleasant pictures of that part of it. Yes, I have some. Well, I should really like to know what. There you were, in a dark room, frightened to death, and tired to death, with only Mrs. Ash and the old nurse to keep you company. Oh yes, that brother was there part of the time. I forgot him. Clever stopped short in sudden amazement. Katie was standing with her back toward her, smoothing her hair but her face was reflected in the glass. At Clover's words, a sudden deep flush had mounted in Katie's cheeks. Deeper and deeper it burned as she became conscious of Clover's astonished gaze till even the back of her neck was pink. Then, as if she could not bear it any longer, she put the brush down turned and fled out of the room, while Clover looked after her 
exclaimed in a tone of sudden comical dismay. What does it mean? Oh dear me, is that what Katie is going to do next? Sadly, all good things must come to an end, so I bid you good night, sleep tight, and don't let the bedbugs bite.